You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So the first thing I want to say this week is you all kick ass. I was out on Saturday at the first annual Rothrock Grit Gravel Grinder, and it was hot and humid, and it's a hard, hard course, with the long course being about 7,500 feet of climbing over about 65 miles. There's a couple shorter courses, but they are not easy. Tons of big mountain climbing and rugged terrain. And there were 180 women and 177 men signed up there. And yes, you heard that right. There were more women than men at this amazing event put on by Happy Valley Women's Cycling in State College, PA. Even better, there were so many feisties. Thank you to everyone who came up and told me how much you like the show and how it's helped you. My heart is so full. You are all awesome. And I would like to also give a big round of applause to all the feisties that were out there grinding through the heat and the wind in the Flint Hills of Kansas at Unbound this weekend. I salute you. That place is unforgiving and you all made us super proud. And speaking of super proud, I need to give a shout out to Tanya Dalton from episode 28. She finished Ironman Cairns, or Cairns as they say, this weekend, her very first Ironman in 13 hours and 42 minutes. And as she told me, never in a million years previously would I have imagined I could complete something like this, especially as a post-menopausal 52-year-old. To think that 18 or so months ago, before I discovered Stacy and you, that I was basically going to give up on this dream when everything went so bad after my period ceased. Tanya, we are super proud of you. And everyone who went for it this weekend, wherever you were, we were super proud of you too. I just wanted to give a shout out to everyone. It's so, so awesome to see all of you out there giving it your all, and living your best lives. So keep on keeping on. Okay, on to this week's guest, who honestly needs no introduction. I sat down with Dr. Jen Gunter, author of the new book, The Menopause Manifesto, an all-around force of nature in women's health. Dr. Jen is an OBGYN and a pain medicine physician. She has been called Twitter's resident gynecologist, the internet's OBGYN, and is one of the fiercest advocates for women's health going. She also has a new podcast out herself called Body Stuff with Jen Gunter, or Dr. Jen Gunter, I should say, which is so very good. Be sure to check out the latest one on menopause as a compliment to this show. And we start talking a bit about that right out of the gate here on this show, Uh, about the first episode where she pretty much debunks the notion that you need to drink eight glasses of water a day and tells her own origin story about getting into medicine. Speaking of her origins in medicine, I highly encourage you to read her bio at her website, drjengunter.com. Dr. Jen has been through a lot 
in her life, including losing her third child at birth. And she's funny and courageous and feisty AF. And man, I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And definitely buy her book. It's the best medical resource for menopause I've read to date. I'll put a link in the show notes to make that easy. Okay, before we get to it, my little weekly reminder to come join us on our social media channels. We are at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have a private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook channel where you can come in and join the conversation. And if you want to deep dive into all things active menopausal living, we've got the Feisty Menopause Membership where we offer in-depth materials, expert webinars, and offer sponsored discounts. So come on in. You can learn all about that at feistymenopause.com. Oh, and that reminder that I have an email and you've been using it and it's awesome. Uh, You can drop me a line at hitplay.notpause at livefeisty.com. Finally, thanks, thanks, thanks. I have to say thank you for all the great reviews. They keep coming in. And it is definitely helping me get guests like Dr. Jen Gunter and to keep growing this show. So kindly keep on subscribing, keep on following, share this show on your socials and tell everybody about it because word of mouth is 100% everything in the podcast world and all the ratings and reviews and the sharing makes a giant difference. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and one more thing. You definitely want to stick around after the interview with Dr. Gunter because I've got a special mini interview with Dr. Stacy Sims. We update you on her book progress, it's coming, and talk about her upcoming Menopause for Athletes course that is open for registration right now and starts on June 18th. Who is it for? Am I a good fit? What can I expect to learn? All coming up after the interview. But first, a word from our sponsors, and then we dig into the Menopause Manifesto with Dr. Jen Gunter. Women who ride bikes, and I am most certainly one of them, know that finding women's cycling clothing can be an exercise in frustration, right? And that's why I am so psyched that one of my favorite women-owned and operated clothing companies, Velarosa, has come on as a sponsor of Hit Play, Not Pause. Velarosa's kits feature bold, beautiful, colorful prints and patterns. And the collections, which I really love, are designed so you can mix and match the coordinating pieces to get more mileage out of your cycling wardrobe. Best of all, they fit like a dream. The chamois is super comfortable and perfectly placed. The yoga waistband hugs your midsection without digging in anywhere. And the leg bands are like 100% functional and flattering with no squeezy sausage leg effect that is a big nope for me. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, Velarosa's got you covered beautifully. And now, thanks to their sponsorship, Hit Play, Not Pause listeners can get 15% off their first order at VelarosaCycling.com. Just enter the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, that's VelarosaCycling.com, the code HITPLAY for 15% off. So go get some sweet Velarosa Cycling clothing today. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. 
So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests, and their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause. I can tell you it works. I'd like to actually just, A, thank you for writing this amazing book. The Menopause Manifesto is amazing, Aww. and we'll talk all about that. But I, I, it's such a great book. A lot of people in my audience have already bought it, so they're very, Aww. very excited that you're going to be on the show. I have Wonderful. men I had men requesting you, which oh. is like, right? <laughs> I, I, am a, I, got a, I got an email. I'm a cisgendered male and blah, 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 and I think you should have... Dr. Jen Gunter on you. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I agree. And thank you for, thank you for saying that. But I'd also like to say that I really love your podcast, the body. Oh. Yeah. Body stuff with uh, Jen Gunter. Um, I listened to the one, how much water do you need? And I was just uh-huh. cracking up because about 10 years ago, I went down that same rabbit hole. It's like, where did this come from? And I can't, I, I spent literally like three days. This, you know, this was a long time ago. And I was I don't know if I found what you found anymore. It was so long ago, but uh, the show is really great and it's so well produced. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. you know, I I think people always like to know like the history behind the medicine too. I think that yeah. really draws people in, and you know, that's why I did a lot of it in the book as well. But um, yeah, that was kind of my vision when I presented it to Ted, and they're like, "Yeah, that sounds cool." So, <laughs> um, yeah, no, so yeah. I love, I love entertaining information. That's like my life. Yeah. Work yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's weird because I really have any pie. I had no podcast. I mean, I'd been guests on podcasts before, but I, yeah. I didn't, you know, I had really no experience, but they, you know, had a nice production company and everything. So yeah, it's been interesting and having it come out at the same time as the book. It's a bit like, I feel like I have a fire hose in my face, but <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, but, it, well, but yeah, I think they bit. work well together because, because of what I learned, you know, I learned like, I was really struck by that story, which you make sound like nothing, that skateboard accident, but it sounds pretty gnarly. I mean, if you like ruptured your spleen and now have one kidney, was the kidney also in that accident? No, no, it was, oh, it was okay. a total fluke that they found out during the workup for the spleen that I had kidney disease. <laughs> oh, okay. Cause I was walking the dog. I was like, oh my God, what did she do? <laughs> yeah, no, it was okay. just, it was a fluke. You know, these things happen sometimes in medicine. You have a test done for one reason and that right. totally checks out. Okay. But you're like, 
oh, but we found something else. Um, and yeah, so, you know, and obviously, I mean, this was in the 1970s. And so, I mean, I'm just, you know, technology and the way we test things and, you know, whether they would have felt my kidney was as damaged today as that, like, I don't know, but you know, you just, I am really a big believer of, you know, you can only do what you can do with the information you have at the time. And so, right, you know, right. the best that they could offer me then was that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living proof that, you know, one kidney is, is just fine. And I hope that, uh, that helps a lot of people decide to be kidney donors. Yeah. I mean, I have a friend I race bikes with who is, uh, has had one kidney and raced very successfully with one for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you're just, you're, yeah. you totally, you know, you got one in reserve. And so the only thing is, is, you know, I try to avoid medications that can damage the kidney and, right. uh, you know, and I'm never going to play, you know, football because you get hit, but you know, it's okay. okay. There's a lot That's of reasons. Okay. Not to play. There's <laughs> lots of reasons not to play football. Um, so with that story, you did talk about that serendipitously, it also put you on the path maybe to being a doctor, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it really did. I mean, I, you know, I'd had, I, you know, like everybody else, some, you know, gone to the pediatrician and, um, I'd had stitches when I was five because of a head injury, but, um, you know, not, and I wasn't someone who was like in and out of the doctor a lot or whatever. And, uh, and, um, uh, then, yeah, then I had this and this was like, you know, sort of full frontal medicine. There was, you know, a lot of tests. And in those days, a lot of the tests that I had to have done had to happen in an adult part of the hospital. And so, you know, it was, uh, it was all the sort of the theater and the, you know, it was medicine back then, you know, they didn't, it just was very different. It was less accessible, I think. And, uh, but I was really fortunate, you know, the, the, even though a lot of it was really scary, I think, um, I was actually really just more fascinated by everything that was happening. Like I was just wanted to know. And, and so I was very fortunate that all of the medical professionals, I think, or almost all of them I interacted with when I asked them questions and kind of insisted on them telling me things. And, you know, I was like, you know, 10 or 11. Um, they did. I, I was also really tall. I was probably already five foot six at that point. So I think that there was probably an assumption that maybe I was older than I was. Um, but whatever, however it turned out, they talked to me in the way that I needed to be spoken to. Right. And, and that yeah, left and you I, feeling empowered, which then yeah. they want to have people feel empowered. Yeah. And it didn't, you know, it, it didn't, there wasn't a time that I didn't understand what was happening to me. They explained everything to me, even though I was like, you know, 11, like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And I, I, it was really, you know, as I talk about in the podcast, like, you know, I was sitting in medical school in first or second year when we were covering the kidney. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was first year. Uh, and they were describing, you know, hydronephrosis, the disease I had, like my knowledge didn't improve any in that class from what I'd been told. That's, and it's, it's not that the, the medical knowledge was poor. It was that it had been explained to me so well. And I had remembered it that it was accurate. And I was just like, well, well, that's not that hard. I knew that when I was 10, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. And, and it, it segues so beautifully into this book and what we're talking about today, because that's what this show is all about. And that was the inspiration for this show. Like I went into menopause thinking I knew something and I knew nothing, like nothing. And then I got really mad that I knew nothing. And I got even more angry that, that especially, you know, I, I am a, you know, athlete myself and, and there's many recreational athletes in the audience that we talk to and there's zero, zero, zero. And it's almost like we're not supposed to exist. Right. So I got 
Yes. So I, I made me mad. And I love how you talk about that in the book and how you talk about the, the need for the word feminism, which in 2021, I'm still explaining to my 19 year old daughter, you know, that it's that it, that, that word is not a bad word that's been so pushed on us. And I, I, I would really like to start there. You know, I know you had a piece in the New York Times this week about that. Um, can you please talk about how medical misinformation and stigma around aging and women are intersected and interconnected? Yeah. So out. it's all misogyny, you know, um, <laughs> Just it's so simple folks. <laughs> it's all misogyny. It's all the patriarchy. I mean, seriously, I mean, you, you know, from the beginning of Western civilization, women's bodies have been viewed as inferior, like literally physically inferior versions of a men's body. And, uh, you know, if you sort of look at your whole view of a woman from that biologically inferior, um, viewpoint that informs everything. And, you know, if the way that you deal with your biological inferiority is you have a period once a month, which is, you know, what they believe that, you know, you, you were, you women were too moist. Mm -hmm. I know that word, right. Um, every cell of their body though, that they couldn't manage fluid and, uh, and women were too hot. Um, and in those days it meant different things. That didn't mean like, you know, being sexually right, hot. Like we're not like, like one to 10 or how hot is she? Right, right, right. It's like, yeah. they had these humors, right? Like blood, bile, that kind of thing. Right. So it relates to that. And, um, the, and blood was associated with heat. And so that's how you got rid of that. Heat was with bleeding. That's why they did bloodletting as a big treatment because it got rid of the heat. In your oh, body. okay. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of have to suspend what, you know, and sort of accept this sort of different view viewpoint or this different thinking. So, yeah. So you're an inferior being. So you have to leak blood once a month or leak fluid. They didn't even really know it was blood. I'm like, how could you not know it was blood? You've seen blood. It's blood. But if you, again, view someone as being inferior and you know, you, you can change everything to match that. So then when you go through your period, when you go through menopause, now you're not leaking that toxic fluid out. So it's accumulating in your body. So every single thing that happens to you is because of your inferior workings, right? So you have shoulder pain. Well, it's obviously menopause, but it's for a man, it's because he was working too hard in the yard. You know? right. like, every, like if you read these old books and I really got very obsessed with had sort of becoming part of the culture of menopause. And so I, I got a whole bunch of books from the 1800s. Um, I'm still looking for a couple of other sort of, um, you know, original books as well. And, you know, it's just amazing to read like, you know, yeah, like, oh, she has a pain here. Oh, well, it's obviously menopause. So yeah, if that's your worldview, and then you take that view and we look at it, we laugh and we say, oh, but look at how we treat women today. I mean, it doesn't feel that it has evolved much. It feels like maybe there's some slightly different framing, but you know, you don't see women uh, who are menopausal of menopausal age represented in the media. You don't see women who are news anchors allowed to have gray hair. You see men who are, you don't see women. You, you don't see um, 65 year old women who are action stars. You see men like, I'm sorry, really? Harrison Ford is going to do another Indiana Jones movie? How old is he? Like, late 70s? I don't know. Like, like what? We and, the, never... and the female counterparts are not equal. Don't let's not even yeah. do a whole show. <laughs> I mean, you know, our society has really been about the, you know, the control of women 
and the erasure of older women, right? That's the ultimate form of control. Like you're irrelevant. You're, you, you have this passing relevance when you're, you know, you're young enough to, to have the kind of vagina and ovaries and uterus that we want and maybe breasts. And then, um, and then once you're, you know, you're menopausal, well, we want to turn you in to, for a new model. And I'd like to point out how that's such a, a patriarchal, like, it's not just that, you know, that, that, you know, we're being treated as irrelevant, but it's this false notion that 70 year old men are super virile, right? You know that, oh, well, you know, I was doing an interview and someone was like, well, if, but of course, like, isn't that nature that men want to turn you in for, you know, cause they want to, cause they can. And I'm like, well, how many 70 year old men can actually, if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, how many of them do you think we're really reproducing? Not very many right? 70% of 70 year old men have erectile dysfunction. Um, if you, their quality of sperm drops, the rate of miscarriage increases, you know, men weren't prime, you know, reproductive sort of, uh, specimens in their six fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties. But our society tells us that we are, that they were right. So we, we sort of are sold this myth that men are still virile and amazing at 60. And then the, the, the counter myth that, that we're useless. And so it's this combination. Hence the word manifesto. Yeah, exactly. I mean, (laughs) when I was starting to write the book, I mean, I was really thinking more about like, um, like the menopause Bible to kind of like, you know, right. Like the vagina Bible. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and then I just started writing it and I was like, got angrier and angrier. And I, I had started to research kind of all this history and, you know, obviously you have an awareness that this is all there, but you haven't sort of really, like until you sort of really deep dive into it, you're like, oh, it's worse than you thought. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I had Eleanor Cleghorn on the show last week, Unwell Women. Have you read her Mm -hmm. book yet? Um, I haven't yet, no. I highly recommend it. If you want to really grab a pitchfork and start burning down the house. (laughs) Like I, I, but we had the same conversation, like, and I have so many of these conversations, even with many of the medical experts I have on the show that there's light bulbs going on where they're like, why isn't this studied? You know, like, like all of a sudden they're like, why aren't women in menopause being studied more in athletics? You know, and they're just like, they start getting angry, but we're all in the ocean. So until you can see the water, you don't know right. that you're in the ocean. Right. And I mean, and then, and then you do look at some studies. So for example, there's a study that I talk about in the book where they looked at um, cyclists to look at preservation of muscle mass. And they were looking for a cyclist that could do, I guess, hundred K, you know, and they couldn't find enough women in the right age group. So they had to lower it. So there's all, so they had to, you know, change the study design a little bit. And so, you know, we don't create spaces where we say, well, women should be physically active and out there doing it. Right. So, so there's also that flip side. We have this culture that says that, well, you're useless when you get older. Oh, you shouldn't be lifting weights. Oh, you're going to get too big. Oh, you're going to be, but it's like, oh my God, no exercise is the most protective thing that you can do for your menopause transition. So yeah, that bulky thing, right. Has done us such a disservice. Right. And anyway, it's like, but who cares? Like, maybe you do want to get bigger. Why, why is it okay for men to get bigger and not okay for women? Yep. Women should get smaller and not take up much space. Right. Yeah, exactly. And they need to be jacked as big as they can be. Right. It's, it's using the concept of. Well, how else are they going to carry me around? When I, when I, when I, when I get faint, you know, like, right. Yeah. 
Well, it's like, you know, how, you know, you're, you're, you women are, you know, you're too fat or too thin, right. You're too, you know, you're, you're too slutty or too, you're too prudy, right. Like there's, you're always on the edge of a knife and femininity Mm -hmm. is also another weapon like that. So you're either, you need to be tiny and feminine to be desirable, but then that also makes you weak. It's like, right. You know, right. You talk in the book about reframing menopause as a badge of strength, and you sort of walked around this just a few moments ago when you were talking about evolution and evolutionary advantages. And I really love this idea because we hear that trope so much that maybe we weren't meant to live this long. Like maybe that's, you know, maybe we should have been dead by now. We've, you know, we've, we've already, we've already given the, the men their boys or what, you know, what I like, right. whatever. Yeah. So. Exactly. And it's so aggravating. Cause you know, I was taught that I was taught that, you know, at, like in medical school or, you know, way back when that, oh, you know, menopause only exists because of, you know, the gifts of modern society, right? Like now women are allowed to live long enough. I'm like, well, so that's true for men then too, right? Like it's not just women, <laughs> like, like, uh, or all women died in childbirth. Well, how, do, how are we here? If all women died in childbirth and infant mortality was 30 to 50%, how do, how are we here? How is it possible? How is it possible? Because every woman has to, had to have had at least, you know, two children to replace herself with one, right? If you think about it. So that doesn't work. And in fact, they had many, many more. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, of course, maternal mortality was higher than it is today, probably one to 2%. And that's high. I mean, Mm -hmm. look, if there was a 1% chance you were going to die in a plane crash, you probably wouldn't get on a plane, right? Hmm. 1% is pretty high. So, but it's not 80% or 50%. And, you know, it's this complete erasure of, um, of women from history. And it's also being incredibly biased. And that's why I go into all of those, you know, some of that data in the book, because, you know, we've all been sold this myth that menopause is like an accident and it's a failure and it's Mm -hmm. not, it's Mm -hmm. a, it's part of the plan. What, what part of the plan is it? And, and can we also just please explain math to people that just because the average age was 30 doesn't mean that everybody died at 30. Right. Yeah. That's a big one. Everybody's like, like infant oh, mortality was big. Kids didn't live till five. Right. Often. Right. Yeah. So. so absolutely. So we're everybody's like, oh, but the average age was 36. Right. Because in the first year of life, 30 to 50% of people died. And I, you know, I give the example of my own, you know, great grandmother, uh, you know, great, great grandmother. There, there were, you know, there were six children and two died before the age of one. So you know, that was common. In fact, you know, they often reuse names because like, it's really odd when you think about it, that, that you would, your son would die and then you would have another one and name him the same name. And then he would die. Oh my gosh. Like I can't even imagine. Um, but yeah, so, so no, so the average life expectancy is just average. That means 50% of the people live longer and 50% live less. Right. Right. So where, where in the evolutionary plan, like what, what, what does menopause serve us? So menopause serves um, longevity and the evolution of the species. And, you know, we, that's what we all serve. You know, that's why we're all here. Um, And it's this idea, you know, that's why we reproduce, right. To evolve and perpetuate the species, but humans have pretty sucky reproduction. I'm not talking about the sex part. I'm talking about the actual (laughs) pregnancy and child rearing. So, yeah. So we have this 
this problem that we have very large heads as infants because we have these big brains and we need for this intelligence and we have small pelvises so we can walk upright, freeing our hands to do things and allowing us to be mobile in different ways. So to do that, to get a big head through a small bony pelvis, the only way that happens is if there's carnage and the person who's delivering sucks it up. Right. So, you know, so that (laughs) is the toll of reproduction is borne by the people who get pregnant and deliver. And so you think about the blood loss with delivery, the tearing, you know, the, the care for a uniquely vulnerable infant, you know, like chimps are, you know, our nearest living relative, like the chimps on the back shortly, like, like holding on. I mean, you, you can't do that with an infant. And so if you think about it, you know, that would have made childhood mortality even higher, right? It would be harder to pass on your genetics. So what we, what the data has told us, and this is called the grandmother hypothesis, is that when there was a grandmother in the family unit, more grandchildren survived and there were more grandchildren. And it wasn't related to genetics because the grandmother effect was lost if the children moved away. And it wasn't genetics for an easier delivery because that effect was seen with male offspring as well as female. And so the hypothesis is that, you know, we were at, you know, century, decade, not decades, you know, millennia ago, like chimps, our closest living relative, you know, they also ovulate, they have, they have ovaries very similar to ours. They, their reproductive function winds down in their late forties, like ours, except chimps die after that as do most mammals, but we keep on living. And so likely there would have been, you know, there's always genetic outliers. There would have been an outlier who lived a bit longer. And you know what? That person would have been useful. And then there would have been more genetics passed on. And so those genetics for longevity would be passed on and on and on until lifespan after menopause has increased because, you know, you kept passing on the genetics for longevity after reproduction. That makes perfect sense. And these grandmothers were useful because if reproduction hadn't wound down, when you're 50, if you're saddled with a one-year-old and a four-year-old, you can't be helpful to your daughter because you're doing those tasks. So the fact that at 50, 51, you're now probably eight years or so more from, from your last child, you know, or at least four, you can now be useful gathering roots, providing shelter, caring for the infant. And so, yeah, I mean, grandmothers provided a significant component of the calories for family units. And this is also where patriarchy comes in. Again, we've all been sold the lie that the, of the hunter man who goes out and does the kill, <laughs> right? Right. Like, yes. like yes. the man does the kill and the woman stays at home by the fire. Right. Yes. And Actually, um, studies tell us that big game hunting is incredibly inefficient. It only provides about 3% of calories in those situations. What big game hunting probably did was elevate your social status in the community. So -hmm. if you brought in a kill, if you were the man who brought the kill down, that elevates your family's social status. And then you would have more protection. You would, so that would, it would benefit your family in other ways. It wasn't benefiting your family with calories. The grandmother was benefiting your family with calories. Love it. Love it. Like that is such a, that, that was a very eloquent explanation and it. (laughs) 
Awesome. Um, I want I want to I want to steer a little bit towards where we are now. I, I feel like I feel like menopause is starting to have a moment, and you know, books like yours and people are starting to talk shows like this. Um, but oh my God, the the misinformation out there and the shillery and it's it's and the internet makes it you know magnifies it right by exponential. I can't even put a number on it, but. Here's where I struggle, and I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on it, is as a longtime science writer, I've been doing this since 1992, okay? I have divvied out a lot of crap, not meaning to, in my, in my day. Low fat comes to mind. Um, I, feel, I still feel so bad <laughs> about telling people that. I know um, that was such a lie. We were all sold that lie. It was terrible. It was terrible. We're still feeling the ramifications of that. Right. Um, and, and, and the Women's Health Initiative, which I really loved reading that you were sort of in the front lines of that as a medical provider. And, and we're still seeing, you know, stuff that makes me furious inside is, is the lasting terrible ramifications of like Andrew Wakefield's shoddy science, like deliberate bad science around autism vaccines, which we are still suffering with right now. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, on one, on one hand side of my mouth, I'm like, trust the science and blah, blah, blah. And the other side, I'm like, damn it. You know, like the, but there's, there's reasons to be skeptical and it's hard to blame people. Mm-hmm. So how does a woman especially when, when so much is driven by money and what gets studied is driven by money and not always the loftiest means, right. Or are the intentions, how are, how are people out there who are literally just trying to do the best for themselves and not steeped in it? Like me, like I am here and certainly you are, what are they to do? What are you even, I mean, buy your book, I'm going to say it again, but (laughs) seriously, you know, like, how do you, it's really challenging. And so, you know, it's very hard to tell someone if what they read was good, but it's very easy to tell someone or easier to tell someone if what they read was bad. And so I kind of have a, a rule of a, f- a few lists of things or a, sort of a, a, bullet, a bullet point list of, of some tips and tricks for navigating the internet, because you're right. There's, there are bad studies. There's, there's some bad studies that have good parts to them, right? right so they right. can be, it can be really challenging sometimes to tease things out, but there are definitely people who mean you ill or who trying to make money off of you. Yes. And so, you know, so I have these sort of tips and tricks to sort of get rid of the low hanging fruit. And so one of them is you cannot take health advice from someone selling you a product. Uh, right. Um, like so that, that means mm-hmm. influencers, you got to You got to not follow them. You got to not like if they're, if an influencer, if you like what they're telling you or watching, but they're, they're all of a sudden telling you about menopause products or vagina products, and they're being paid for it. You can't trust any of that post, you can't trust anything going forward that that influencer says about that health topic because it's not reliable. We know that bias has an impact. You know, we see sites like, for example, Goop, they exist to promote a store. You know, the fact that they've been allowed to brand themselves as some kind of women's health site, no, you're a store and you're trying to get people to buy your stuff and you're doing it by either creating, you know, crazy stories to bring people to your site or it's sort of this illusion of information. So 
would you get your health advice about depression from a company that made antidepressants? No, you wouldn't. And so you should use that same eye to supplements, things like that. Now, the problem is that can be really hard. Like for example, there's tons of uh, registered dietitians and doctors who get money from promoting supplements. So you have to be careful, promoted posts, ignore it, move on. Uh, If somebody has a ton of promoted posts, you know, maybe you should think twice about, about that person being a health influencer for you, you know? Um, if they're aligned in any way with conspiracy theory thinking. So just like Andrew, so anti-vaccine views is conspiracy theory thinking. And, um, and those are, you know, those are linked with um, disordered medical thinking. And not only, you know, do we want people to get their vaccines, but if somebody is anti-vaccine, they're also more likely to have a harmful belief about menopause or about other things in medicine um, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's disordered thinking. So, you know, you have to ditch the conspiracy theory thinking. And then the third thing is be mindful of your Google searching. So I, I'm not the person who tells people don't, don't be Dr. Google, go ahead and right, look things up. Right. But you, you, the problem is, is the internet is designed in a way to give you bad results. It just is. And I'm going to give an example of something called the O shot, which is awful and no one should ever have it. It's this okay. injection into the clitoris that's supposed oh, to. Oh, you did you orgasm. just write about this on the agenda? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's please a total, talk about it. <laughs> it's a total scam. Oh, yeah. It's a total even. scam. And people should go to, you know, read that post if they want to know more about it. It's a complete scam. But if you wanted to research that, if you put in the O shot, mm-hmm. you don't find anything negative about it until you're on right. about the fifth page of the internet. And nobody gets there. Nobody gets there because the guy who invented it, everybody he's trained is a doctor or a nurse practitioner, and they write about it on their site. And so when Google is searching things, it knows those sites are valid. And so they come up higher in the search. And so now the search looks organic. All you get are pages and pages and pages of good things about the O-Shot. So what you need to do instead is if you're thinking, oh, like, you know, procedures, surgery, O-shot to put, you want to, you want to, to, um, levy your search technique. So it works for you. So for example, if, um, you know, I like to think that I'm a trusted source. So you could put in whatever you think you, the thing you're looking up and you could put Dr. Jen Gunter, and that would have all my stuff filter up because that's part of a search term, or you could put NAMS for the North American Menopause Society. That will help your search. Or ACOG, ACOG for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Mm -hmm. And so add in a trusted medical source as part of your search. Great, great tip. That's a great tip. And so if you just follow those three things and also don't read the comments. I mean, so what happens is that's why, for example, on the agenda, I don't allow, you have to be a paying member to comment because people are less likely to pay to hate comment, right? Because if I write a big, beautiful post on something and then someone writes something hateful below and you read that, that will actually change what you thought about the facts in the piece. Mm -hmm. And so reading comments, you should actually really try to avoid that. I know it's hard because the internet is community, but you'll get all these people saying, well, I disagree or, or you're so mean. And that will actually change what you thought about the piece. So those are kind of four easy tips. Yeah. And you can't also, the internet is also filled with actual bots, not, not real things. That, right. Oh that yeah. Are deliberately trying to, uh, cause havoc. <laughs> so right. yeah, yeah, don't don't read the comments is, is universal truth. I would like to talk menopause hormone therapy. Sure. Uh, because and not necessarily the nuts and bolts. Those are all in your books. So, I like I'm I want to keep this like large sort of topic. Um, 
one of the things I feel in the in the atmosphere is there's this like almost moral tug of war, if you will, you know, like the feeling and it, you see this in women a lot, like I had natural childbirth, and I would never, ever, 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 ever do that again. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I but like, it was the same thing. I'm like, Oh, well, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. But like, there was some sort of like, superiority, almost like I'm gonna mm-hmm. just tough. And my Lord, anyway, but but there's almost the same thing going on with menopause. Like, uh, even women who are willing to say, okay, the W, the, the Women's Health Initiative was, you know, bad research. It's the, the treatments are safe, blah, blah, blah. They still feel like maybe they're folding. You know what I mean? If they, if they get, if they go on um, the hormonal right. route. So can, can we talk a little bit? I mean, you were pretty open. I don't know if it was in your book or something I heard about that you had an estrogen patch for some mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. if you still do. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit about? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So it is true. I think your observation's spot on about this weird duality. We frighten women away from MHT, but then we also say, oh, but it's a fountain of youth or, oh, aren't you tough enough? Like it's because, but this is how we treat women, right? You know, you're basically boobs um, and a vagina and, you know, to society. And, but we also want to frighten you about that. You know, we all, you know, we, you know, we want to keep you always on the edge of a knife. And so that's why I think it's really important. And I talk about this a bit in the book to dispel with terms like natural, and it doesn't mean anything. What you need to do is you need to write down your health concerns. So what is bothering you? It might not necessarily always be related to menopause. Just because you're 52 doesn't mean it's hormone related or completely hormone related. So you should write down all the things that bother you. And then you should look at the, the medical conditions that are associated with menopause and see like, are you at risk for some of those? And then look at menopausal hormone therapy and see where it fits in, in the treatment spectrum, you know? And I think that, you know, there are women who do not want to take hormones. It's just not in their gestalt. And it's not really just even a menopause thing. I, I think it's, it's become so toxic or labeled, you know, I, and I actually blame a, a lot of naturopaths for the way hormones are talked about online. They're either saviors or evil. It's really interesting. Um, but you know, I see this, we see, I'd say, I say 22 year old who's like, I do not want to take hormonal contraception. There is no way I, the, I will not use a hormone friend. Okay. I mean, people get to have beliefs, um, yeah. you know, and if that's your belief about your body, you know, I would just always tell people, okay, I get that, but I would just like you to hear about everything so you can make an informed choice. But sometimes there are people like, nope, I will never take a hormone because I saw what it did to my best friend and I'm not going to do it. And, you know, stories have, have power over us and anecdotes speak to us. So, you know, I, and I tell people, you know, listen, let's look at all the therapies, look at all the things, look at how you're suffering and then decide what works for you, you know, but to be afraid of menopausal hormone therapy, especially for short-term use, you know, really, if you're using transdermal and you're using standard pharmaceutical prescriptions, just doesn't medically make sense, right? Like three to four years of MHT transdermal is not, you know, not going to shorten your life in any way. So, you know, so, you know, whether, whether there are some potential long-term implications from long-term use, and we're still looking at that. Um, but again, the data tells us it doesn't change longevity. 
So, you know, people taking it aren't living shorter lives, which I think is ultimately what people want to hear, right? Like you're not living a shorter life. And so you have to think of what is it doing for you? And, and if it's giving you a net benefit, well, then it's probably worth it because it's a low risk medication. If it's not helping you at all, or you don't need it, well, you shouldn't take it. You shouldn't take anything you don't need. Like, you know, hormonal contraception is really safe, but if you're not at risk for pregnancy, if you don't have any problems with your cycle, why would you take it? Right. Totally. That makes, that makes total sense. And it does beg the question though, like there's still so much after all this time that we don't know about menopausal hormone therapy. Like there's still like defects in the brain. It's a good, like, the, you know, all this stuff, like some people, you talk to some people and they're like, I'm taking it for my brain. I'm taking it for my heart. And then you talk to other people. I'm not taking it because of my brain, because of my heart. Like, where are we in the spectrum of actually understanding, you know, the, the yeah. real long-term risks? I mean, we now have a 10 year window, maybe. I mean, the last thing I read is it seems like 10 years w- within your menopause. Well, that's for starting it. So, okay. you know, if you're okay. 65, if you're 65, the bulk of the data tells us that you're going to have more complications starting MHT than not. And, and so, you know, that is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease and an increased risk of dementia, but starting it below the age of 60 or within 10 years of your last period, um, the risks are very, very low. They're not zero, but they're very, very low. And, you know, it's the best therapy for hot flushes. There's other things that can work as well, but it's, it is, you know, the most effective. Um, it, uh, it can also help with mild depression that might be triggered during the menopause transition and it's protective for osteoporosis. So those are kind of like the three sort of reasons, if you will. Now there's other potential benefits from it. So we think that it lowers the incidence of type two diabetes, lowers the incidence of colon cancer. uh, And, uh, and so those benefits um, aren't right now considered enough to take it, but There are things to think about, right? When you're looking at all the reasons, there's also some data to suggest that it might help women preserve muscle mass as they age, right? Hmm. Because the menopause transitions associated with an accelerated loss of muscle mass so that it may help some of those things. And so those are the, you know, the, the things that we think are the benefits from it. And so people have to think, you know, are are you suffering from hot flushes? Are you at risk for osteoporosis? You know, are you having depression? I mean, if you're not having any of those, then, you know, then, then maybe you, you don't actually, you know, need it. So you have to think about like what's going on in your life. And, um, and then also, you know, how you feel on hormones. There are some people who take hormones and they say it affects their mood and they just can't tolerate it. And, you know, if that's, if that's the case, then that's the case. And there are non-hormonal medications and other things like, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy is really effective for hot flushes, which is super cool. Um, you know, you can rewire your brain basically with CBT and, uh, you know, and there's some people who are like, you know what they're, I mean, I meet people in the office who are like taking a medication is just not for me. And I mean, okay. Like, I I don't understand that, but you know, if that's their, if that's their personal identity, that's their personal identity. And, you know, and you say, okay, great. If you're not interested in medication, cognitive behavioral therapy, we have other things. Yeah. And, and they're more likely to have like a nocebo effect, right? I mean, if you go in thinking this is not for me and that I'm going to take it, but it's going to, They'll do terrible yeah. things. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it seems to be so setting you up. So we do see a lot for, of that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I see people who like, well, I, I took one dose of that and, and I just, my depression went through the roof and, and it's like, okay, well, it probably wasn't really like 
enough in your bloodstream. And so, but you know, yeah, there's a huge nocebo effect based on what people read and um, their concerns. And, um, and so, yeah, so, you know, I tell people, you know, kind of have to give something an open mind, you, you know, you have to, if you're going to take a hormone to see how you feel or any medication to see how you feel, right. Sometimes it takes a little while to reach steady state. So mm-hmm, really right. you kind of have to commit to a three month trial to see if this is going to be helpful or not. What is up with bioidenticals? Can you explain to me? Like, yeah. honest to God, like I, I dive in, I'm like, what is, and really smart women are, 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 are arguing as them as like superior from hormones. And I'm, and I can't figure it out. Is it, is it all just the presentation and you hear like wild DM and you think that's got to be better than synthetic mm-hmm. hormone? Is that is. Yeah. So that's a legacy of Christiane Northrup. And somebody else called Dr. Lee, who was a family doctor in the 1980s, who did no research, um, was just his idea. And a lot of people, this was just their idea in the 1970s and the 1980s. So I tell people that bioidentical is a marketing term, and it doesn't really mean anything medical. The estrogen that your ovaries make is the estrogen that gives people breast cancer. And it's the estrogen that gives people blood clots. So how is that safe, right? It's not whether something's bioidentical. It's whether it's tested and it's safe and it's effective. That's what matters. Otherwise, you're, you're being victimized by marketing. So people who promote these so-called bioidentical hormones, so what they're saying is, well, that's this, it's estradiol. So it's the same as what's in your ovaries. Well, it's actually not quite identical. And I go into that in the book. It's a little complicated, but it's not quite identical. But yeah, but, but the whole thing is, is whether you get estradiol from a compounding pharmacy or whether you get it from big pharma, it is made exactly the same way. Nobody is grinding up yams. Nobody is grinding up soybeans. They are all made by a process called semi-synthesis known as the marker degradation made in a lab from a starting chemical from yams or soybeans, which is altered with multiple, multiple chemical steps. You know, causing, calling estradiol that is made that way natural would be like calling gasoline natural. Well, yeah. I mean, at one point it was like fossils, you know, I like, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's not that it's natural. It's so, so that's a marketing thing. And then compounded hormones where a pharmacy mixes them up. Those are dangerous. I would never take those. I would never use that for my own health. These hormones are hard to compound. In fact, you know, pharmaceutical companies have to show the FDA exactly how much absorbed, how this happens long-term. So when I put a patch on my body, I know in 24 hours, how much of that hormone has gone into my bloodstream, which is important. You don't know that with a compounded product at all. And many of them contain more hormones than they claim. Some have less, some have erratic absorption, and they don't come with the labeling that the FDA requires for a pharmaceutical product. So it looks like they're safer, right? But they're not. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when you take a compounded product, you are, you are not getting something that is customized for your body. You are getting something that is less precise, less accurate, that hasn't been studied and is not recommended by any of the medical professional societies. Thank you for that. I, 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 it, it continue. It may, I, I mean, I understand it. I understand the psychology of it to a point, but I, it, it, I it is wanna, something that frustrates me. So I want to add one more thing. Please. So everybody, all these sort of natural people, these functional medicine doctors and naturopaths, they like to say that, oh, well, you, Dr. Gunter, you're just a big pharma shill. Well, you know, first of all, I haven't taken a penny from big pharma since 2003. 
So I'm not. But secondly, you know, you're a shill for compounded for compounded medications because they make a lot of money off of recommending compounded therapies. These people are accusing other doctors of what they're actually doing themselves. When people sell compounded products, they're almost always charging cash. You know, I spoke to somebody last week who was charged $800 for consultation to come away with a, a bunch of compounded hormones. You're also being sold a lie about hormone testing usually, because that's how you decide hormone testing to decide hormone, uh, menopausal hormone therapy is a scam. And it, people do it because they make money off of it. Those pellets also total scam. They're a huge moneymaker for physicians. So the person who is the shill is the person recommending the compounded products and the tests. Can we call you the Judy Bloom of menopause? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Are you there? God, it's me, menopause. Yes, I love yeah, it. Oh my God, you could have called it that. Did you think about calling it that? Did that um, ever cross your mind? No, uh, <laughs> no, uh, but I did. Um, I think that was, I, I think I used that title in an essay I wrote for the times maybe a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, I might've missed that. For, oh. for some, for somewhere I wrote it. Um, yeah, no, but we need more women in menopause. Like think about what, like when you were reading teen novels growing up, there were, you know, there was talk about puberty and change of life. And so you had heroines that were, you know, going through the things you were going through. How many like heroines do we have who are also having hot flushes or, you know, they're, they're going to the ball and they're sweating, you know? Yeah. 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 And sex is a little different. You know? <laughs> like, so yeah, just talking about it. So, yeah, I think we need more. I mean, I'm really excited. I haven't, I don't know if it's out yet, but um, the Fast and Furious 9, I've never seen any of the movies, but Helen Mirren is in um, the new one. And she plays some badass assassin woman. And there's a scene in the trailer, which you should watch. Cause it is like the most empowering thing. So, you know, I, I don't know how old she is, but she must be in her sixties at least. And she's oh, yeah, got sure. her gorgeous white hair. I mean, it's just stunning. And she's in some like gorgeous, I think it's a white fur coat and some young hot guy is driving the Porsche for her. And she gives him these very like stern instructions. And he's, he jams on the brakes and she pulls out these huge guns and puts her arms out either window and kills everybody. <laughs> and it's just like, it's just, it's like so empowering. And you think about men get to see themselves in that way on the screen all the time. They mm -hmm. get to see themselves being virile in 90, being virile in 60, being virile in four. They get to see that. And we don't get to see that. I want to see more of that. Thank you, Dr. Jen, for your time and passion. Now, as promised, let's talk menopause for athletes with Dr. Stacey Sims. This is a segment of a recent interview I did with Dr. Sims about her upcoming intensive course, Menopause for Athletes, which kicks off June 18th. To learn more and register, you can visit drstacysims.com. And importantly, Feisty Menopause members get exclusive member discounts. So go check that out now. And I know people ask all the time about the book, so I'm going to push that elephant right out the room. Um, COVID, we do have a follow-up to Roar that is a menopause transition age specific book sequel to Roar. It was supposed to be out by now, but COVID threw everything into a sunder, including the publishing industry. Yeah. So we have had um, 
multiple delays. Every pretty much every project I have worked on has been delayed. But the book is we see a light at the end of the tunnel. I do not have a date yet. You will all know as soon as we do uh, going into photo studios that are now open so we can actually do pictures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's been it's been a whole thing. So thank you for your patience. But publishing like everything else got really disrupted in the last 18 months. So things are just things are just delayed. So the, yeah. yes, there will be a book coming out. It is not out now. It's coming. Um, there was a question about the women are not small men and the menopause. And I think you have addressed it. I think what I'm hearing is the women are not small men course is similar to roar and the menopause for athletes is similar to this book we're working on, which is, you know, addressing specifically this audience. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, there are many specific questions people want to know about what is in the course. I myself have taken the course, so I can tell you it is incredibly comprehensive, but I will not speak for Stacey. I'll ask some of them, one of the big ones that comes up is if you cover HRT or, you know, it used to be called hormone replacement therapy, also menopause hormone therapy. And are you against it? Um, I cover it and I'm not fully against it. There's okay. a time and a place to use it. Um, but I do get frustrated when women have mild symptoms or don't have the answers to alternatives and they get pushed onto it because there are definitely other viable options to try first, but I don't want people to sit around and suffer thinking that they can't go on hormone therapy. It, there is a time and a place for it for sure. But I also want people to know that there are other options to use before they take that dive onto it. Great. Regarding the demographic, so is the course, you know, we have women who are saying, I'm perimenopausal, is this for me? I'm, in, you know, I'm in menopause, which I, is really perimenopausal, is this for me? Or maybe they mean I'm postmenopause, you know, they're all done, is this for me? Talk a little bit about the scope of the course in the spectrum of the transition. Yeah, so a lot of women don't know what perimenopause is, and that right. can start, you know, in your early 40s, maybe. They say it starts 35-ish, where hormones start to change, and you notice that your training and nutrition isn't quite working for you, even though you have regular periods. And then around three to five years before you actually hit that definitive one point in time where you've had 12 months of no periods, which we call menopause, that's where we see the biggest body composition changes. Mm -hmm. And then after that one point in time called menopause, it's postmenopause. So this course goes through that whole evolution of what to do when your hormones start changing, how to um, work with what's happening with training and nutrition when you hit menopause and then postmenopause, what do you do in that aspect as well? Um, Because our sex hormones affect every cell of the body. And when they flatline, we have to find alternatives to create muscle protein synthesis, to have blood sugar control, to get our bone bones strong or keep our bones strong to maintain power speed and improve our performance because everyone you know in the media has portrayed menopause women as being fat and dowdy and so it's that assumption that we have to get that extra menopot but it's not it's if you're looking and changing things along the way that when you hit that three to five years before that definitive point of menopause you're already in the cusp of changing things so you don't get that weight gain Right, right. And that that segues into uh, two questions. One is, 
is this also appropriate for women who are put into like medically induced menopause or, you know, an early menopause that way? Yeah. The thing about medically induced menopause is you don't have the perimenopause leading up to it. So you go immediately from premenopause to boom, flat line of hormones. Which is and, often more difficult for women, correct? Yeah, exactly. Because now instead of this linear and then a bump, you have this definitive tipping point. So when we talk about what to do when you hit that no hormones, it's the same aspect, but we really got to dial in that change and nutrition change because you've had such a strong tipping point instead of a lead in and then the other side. Is the course also, we talked about HRT, MHT a bit, uh, okay for women who are taking it already? Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay. Um, let's talk about broadly the the sections of the course can you give me a little bit like you don't need to go through the whole syllabus but i know that you break it down into modules can you tell yep. me a little bit about the modules that you cover so everybody knows like what's included in here yeah so um the way i've always operated when i teach is i give the basic science background so people have a really good understanding of what's happening to the body or whatever topic we're talking about um, so in this, I go through what's happening from a sociocultural aspect that um, puts so many expectations or negative connotations around menopause. And then the physiological aspects that's happening with the hormones, what the hormones do, um, how we counter, counter what's happening. Um, and then I go specifically into hormone therapy and the alternatives that talk about different um, anti-anxiety drugs you can use, the, all mm -hmm. the different adaptogens, dosage of the adaptogens. If you end up on HRT or going that way, what kinds of things you can still use with it. And then I get it into the specifics of like training. What is high intensity? What is lifting heavy? How do I implement it? What does a training schedule look like? How right, do I periodize right. it? And then the nutrition as well, like what to eat, when to eat it, um, how do I scope my day? And then the last bit is putting it all practically together, which I really like to do because you can talk theory all you want, but until yep. you put it into practice and see what the outcomes are, it's really hard to visualize and put it into play. So I, I think what we have something like nine case studies in that. And yep. yeah, yeah. Which includes everything from um, ultra runners to rock climbers to CrossFit enthusiasts, right? It's a, it's a, it's a nice spectrum of athletes that you... Yeah. Uh, I like the case studies because you see it in application, like you yeah. said, like you get to yeah. see how, where they start, where all the advice and, and, and information that you have given applies, and then the after effect, which is, which is incredibly useful. Yeah. And um, I know that we've been endurance heavy, especially with war, because we both come from that endurance background. But right. when we start changing up as we get older, expanding horizons so we have a lot of power based and recreational based as well as some extreme and ultra running because that's where a lot of women tend to gravitate when they get into this so yeah, yeah. do i need to be an elite athlete to take your course of course not what we say right is if you exercise on purpose you're an athlete and yeah. so the whole goal is to improve what you're doing to reach your own performance potential Hit Play, Not Pause is proud to be sponsored by Noon Hydration in 2021. I have been a huge fan of Noon for well over a decade. They have products for immunity, recovery, getting a good night's rest, 
and I absolutely swear by their Podium series, which include branched-chain amino acids that are super important for women during and after menopause. So show your support and head over to NoonLife.com. That's Noon, N-U-U-N, life, one word. And use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, again, one word, with a capital F and a capital M, for 30%, yes, 30% off of all of Noon's amazing products. Again, NoonLife.com, use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, with a capital F and a capital M, and get 30% off of anything you want. Check it out. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Dr. Vonda Wright. Dr. Vonda is a double-boarded orthopedic surgeon, an author, a speaker, and an innovator focused on optimizing professional and physical performance. She explains the causes of joint pain, ways we can improve joint health, and how to stay active and fit as we age. She is also feisty. You will not want to miss this one. So until next week, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Feisty.